Well, starting point, this is a, a great series I'm, I'm glad that we can go through and talk about. We're, we're getting a lot of it from a curriculum call of a small group Bible study called Starting Point that's put out by North Point Church from Alfreda, Georgia, and so have a lot of uh, borrowing and a lot of good ideas from the pastor and from, from that as we go through this. Um, if you missed last week, I really, really strongly encourage you, go to bridgewater.church and just watch that because what we talked about was how, what, how important it is why you believe what you believe. Okay, so we, we may all be able to express what we believe, but why do you believe it? And, and myself, and I, as I talked about this, so many people, so many of you were leaning in and you're nodding your head and you're like, yeah, why I believed what I believed as a kid uh, is not sufficient as an adult, right? I believe because that's the way I was raised, because my mom and dad told me it was true because of, you, you know, I had an experience, maybe it wasn't even as a kid, maybe it was just as an adult a few years ago, and I had this experience, and I had this feeling, and I felt like the weight was lifted, but since then, I've had other experiences, and I've had other feelings, and, and that is not a sufficient or strong enough reason for me to continue to believe what, what I did believe. And I'm telling you, there is an adult answer to this. There is a mature answer to this that the Apostle Paul gets into and wrestles with. And so if you missed last week, I want to encourage you to go back and, and watch that at bridgewater.church. But we're moving on today, and we're going to talk about a bad word today. Okay, you don't have to cover your kids' little ears or anything. This is not a swear word, although I've heard this, I've heard swear words used much more often than the word I'm going to use. And, and I think is, it's, it's a word that, that is just anathema in our culture today. Nobody, you can't talk about, you cannot use this word in normal everyday conversation. You can only use it in church. It's the word Sin. I mean, have you ever heard that? I mean, when the police officer pulls you over for going too fast, he says, so how, 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 how much do you think you were sinning just then? <laughs> Is that what he says? Your boss says, you know, I need to call you into my office a little bit later. When you come up a little bit later, we're going to talk about some of your sins recently in your job. You'd be like, what? Like, you can't use that word. I mean, it sounds so heavy, right? It sounds so wrong. No, no, no. We don't use the word sin in society anymore. What we do is we've substituted other words like mistake. Like, well, you know, a politician gets up and says, mistakes were made. Really? That's what you call over a million dollars in bribes, lying and destroying someone's reputation who is a good man and they're, you know, that's what, a mistake? I think it's a little bit more than that. And this starts super young. Like we have adult mistakes that are more than mistakes. But even when we're kids, right, we, we say, oh, it was, it was an accident. Did you do it on purpose? Yeah. <laughs> but by accident on purpose, right? And so there's a cute little video as we start. I'm going to play that uh, talks about even as children, what we call mistakes and accidents aren't often totally accidents. <laughs> I don't need to make a pen pull up. 
didn't mean to. Yeah. Corey. I'm sorry. <laughs> Corey. <laughs> She's a little actress, man, you know. <laughs> Is it okay now? Like, it's just, but you know what? This is funny, because, you know, because it's little, and I remember my kids, I have four kids, and I remember, you know, they had, you know, one of them had a particular spot that they would go to, and you're like, oh, no, no, here's the potty. You're not standing in that spot. You're going, you know, or they disappear and be quiet, and you're like, wait a minute, it's quiet. Something's wrong, and sure enough, they're in another room, like, really quiet, and like, you know what happened, because they, they know, they know it's not, it's not an accident. What do you call, you know, a mistake is something you did wrong out of ignorance or by accident, right? That's a mistake. But what do you call a mistake you do on purpose, right? Is, is that a mistake or is it something else, something heavier, something more serious than that? What do you call a mistake you planned, <laughs> A premeditated mistake? Is that, is that, does that actually work? You know? And, and we use all sorts of things. You know, well, you know, it was a poor choice. You know, I have a professional athlete talking about the poor choices he made. I, I don't think beating your girlfriend within an inch of her life was a poor choice. I, I don't think that's the right word you need to use or the right phrase. Some of you are planning on you got a whole list of mistakes you're planning on in the coming week. You're planning on mistaking in your taxes for next year. You know, is, is it really a mistake if you plan it? And then this really, really makes it clear that this is a wrong word to use and we need to use the word sin. What do you call a mistake you make over and over and you can't stop it? And you don't want to do it. But you can't, you can't help it and you, you, just, you just keep doing it even though part of you is like, I hate it when I do that. I don't want to do that again. And yet I keep doing it. Well, the word that we're searching for isn't mistake, it's sin. It's sin. And we're sinners. And we need to recognize that those two things are together. You hear that, that sentence often, right? Love the sinner, hate the sin. There's no such thing as disembodied sin. It's not like this, this black, you know, cloud, the, the vapor that kind of comes and goes, and I hate that vapor, but I love the person it's, it's hanging over. No, sin is always comes from a sinner. And, and we need to grapple with our sin um, a sinner is someone who knows better but does it anyway. There is no education. So a, a mistake is like a wrong turn. You can fix a mistake. You can just turn the other way. You can get a map out. You can fix mistakes you can fix. But sinners, the problem with a sinner is I'm the problem and I can't fix me. And you can't fix you. And maybe you're young enough that you think you still can. But I'm telling you, just, just keep, keep beating, that, beating that thing and, and you'll eventually figure out. And so Jesus says a lot about sin. 
and, and tells us a lot about the condition we're in. And I think we got to, the first thing, before we can find any solution, we got to realize how bad a position we are in right now. We, we've handed out over 70 books, How Good is Good Enough, uh, last Sunday. We ran out. And so if you did not get one last week, we have some more at the Welcome Center online. I think you can um, just... Uh, text something in the chat and they'll get a copy to you if you're in Hancock. Also, we will get one to you afterward. Just uh, go to, to Pat Simmons or Kim or someone there and uh, we'll get a list and we'll get that book out to you because it's a really good question. How good is good enough? Is it kind of like a bear is chasing you good enough? Like I don't really have to be faster than the bear. I just have to be faster than the guy next to me. <laughs> You know, do I just have to be like better than like 51% of people on earth? I think I could be better than 51%. Or, or is there some other standard? Is it not judged on a curve? And here's what Jesus tells us about how good is good enough. He says, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we don't have teachers of religious law and Pharisees here, so to speak, but I am a teacher of the religious law. So he's saying, you got to be better than Pastor Bob. And you got to be better than Pastor Aaron or Matt or whoever, any pastor, you know, you got to be better than them. And so then you're thinking, okay, so either the standard is really high or those guys aren't as good as I thought they were. <laughs> Just probably both. Um, You've heard that our ancestors were told, he goes on to explain, you must not murder. And if you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. And this is, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. And I brought in my copy. I had a kid just a couple weeks ago. And he's like, is that the original? <laughs> it's in my office. And I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm that old. <laughs> no, it's in English. No, anyway, a friend of mine made this out of Pennsylvania Bluestone. And uh, I didn't bring the first four. Actually, they're in my car because they're heavy. Um, but a lot of times, this is number six, thou shall not kill. If, if we were to do a poll of Americans, what is the worst commandment to break? Now, the Bible never makes any distinction between breaking one as being any worse than breaking number 10. It's not in an order of importance or anything like that. And, and so there's no distinction. But us in our culture, if we were to say, what is the worst commandment to break? I think we'd all say number six, don't kill. Yeah, that's a really, really bad one. You don't want to break that one. And Jesus is saying here, yeah, this is, this is an important commandment. But then he goes on and he explains further what this commandment is really talking about. He says, but I say, if you're ever even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. And if you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, then you're in danger of the fires of hell. He's saying, you know what, before you actually do an action to kill someone, the murder is first in your mind and in your heart. And when you have that anger and when you have that negative desire to hurt someone in your mind, you're already sinning. And so who hasn't done that? The worst commandment. And I'm a breaker. How many of you have called someone an idiot? How many of you have called the television set an idiot? <laughs> or whoever's talking on the television, you're like, you're an idiot. Like, I can't believe, right? And so we're all guilty. And then he goes on and he says, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. Oh, okay, we're going from six to seven. And a lot of people would say, okay, this is the worst. This is the second worst. 
But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You gotta be kidding me, Jesus. I don't know of a single man who that is, has not broken that commandment. And, and honestly, I think it's like 99% of women, maybe 100%. I'm not a woman, so I won't say. But And, and so Jesus is saying the two worst commandments were all breakers. That's a problem. And if you don't internalize and recognize how bad your problem is and my problem is, you're never going to accept the solution that Jesus offers. And the reason, though, Jesus, he raises the standard so high, right? It seems like no one makes a passing grade, but the truth is, I should get this out again. He's not raising the standard. He's just showing us what the standard is because this commandment 7 is tied to this commandment 10. Thou shalt not covet anything that is thy neighbor's. This is a shortened version of the command. It actually explains a little bit more in Exodus 20 when the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. It says, you, shan't, you shouldn't covet your neighbor's tractor. Well, it says donkey, but for them, it would, you can't covet your neighbor's tractor or donkey. Don't covet your neighbor's ox. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. And what is coveting? Coveting is a thought crime. You don't actually have to do anything to covet. You just have to desire and want. I want that for me. I want her. And you break the Ten Commandments. So he's just drawing the, the connection between Commandment 6 and Commandment 10. He's not, he's not really raising the bar. He's just saying, here's the bar. You thought it was here. And you thought, I could get over that. It's like as high as the roof. Try to jump over that one. You can't do it. And so we got to recognize that, that sin is a problem in our lives. But then Jesus doesn't want to just leave it like that. All right, sin's a problem. You're, there's no way you can meet the standard. The end, you're all going to hell. Like, no, no. And, and so he said, he's taught a lot of other things. And this is one of the stories that he made up to help us understand about God and our relationship with him and what God wants, how God wants to solve this problem. And it's the, a lot of you know it as the, the um, parable of the prodigal son, but really it's the parable or the story of the two lost sons. There's a list of stories about lostness that Jesus is telling. He talks about a lost coin. He talks about a lost sheep. And now he's talking about two lost sons. And you'll have to read it for yourself in Luke 15 if you want to hear about the other lost son, the older son. But I'm going to talk about the younger son. The younger son comes to the father in, in Jesus' story and he says, Dad, let me be honest. I don't like you. In fact, I wish you were dead. In fact, that would be a nice thing to do. Let's just pretend you're dead. You give me all the money that I would get as an inheritance and I'll leave and I won't, because I just want your money. I don't like you at all. So why don't you just give me your money and I can be on my way and, you know, and I'll be happy with that. I mean, incredibly rude, incredibly evil thing to say to his father who was a good father. But the crazy thing is the father said, sure. Here's your inheritance. Here's all of the wealth. And he, to do that, he would have had to sell stuff, maybe even land that had been in his family for a long time, for flocks and herds, and, and just, you know, would have taken some time. And then through all that, the son is just adamant. I am taking this and I am out of here. And as soon as he gets an inheritance, off he goes. 
and predictably wastes it. Jesus says on riotous living. And you can just figure out what that was. And then he, he runs out of money and there's a famine and he has no job and he, the only job he can get is working in a pig farm feeding pigs. And for a Jew, pigs were unclean. Among, I mean, there were lots of animals that were unclean, but pigs are really unclean, unclean. For us, it would kind of be like the mentality of you're going to be a rat farmer because we don't eat rats and they didn't eat pigs. And they're like, really a rat farmer? Like, and so he is at the lowest of the low points. And then it says he comes to his senses and he realizes that my dad is a fair boss and he treats his servants way better than I'm being treated right now. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back. I'm going to humble myself. And he had this whole speech prepared where at the end of the speech, he says, just hire me as your servant. I don't even deserve to be your son. Um, and then he goes back to his father and he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And the father isn't standing on the porch, tapping his foot. I knew you'd be crawling out of some godforsaken hole, making your way back to me here. Got a couple questions for you. What did you do with that money? Can't believe you'd show your face around here after what you did. No, he doesn't do that. And he doesn't even like open his arms to him on the porch and shout to him. He doesn't even walk to him. He runs. The father runs. When I think of this, I think of my own father. He doesn't run so good anymore. <laughs> He's 87. And even 10, 15 years ago, to picture him running. Be like you running, Kevin. Not a pretty picture. But what love. What love to everything that he has. He's just going for it. There's my son. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, this is the prepared speech. Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being your son. And the dad realizes he gets it. Jesus' purpose in talking about sin is not condemnation. It's not to make you feel more guilty. It's not to load you with more shame. Like, oh, great. I broke the real sixth commandment. Now I realize I've broken the sixth and the tenth like thousands of times. Great. No, the reason he is explaining and his purpose of letting us see our sin is so that we can get rid of it, so that we can ask him to get rid of it, so that we can be restored with our relationship to him. And so the father cuts off the man, the son, in the middle of his speech, doesn't even let him get to the part of just hire me as your servant. He's like, no, no. He says to his servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him and get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And what he's saying is he's like, you know, I don't want to just tell my son that I love him. I want to show him through my actions how much I love him. Kill the, fatted, the, kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. So the question I have for you today is, do you need restoration with God? 
And I want to talk to those of you who maybe you are restored with God. You have come back to the Father. You have asked Jesus to forgive your sins. This is a place we need to stay. This is not just the beginning of our spiritual life. And when you're a brand new Christian, you're, you're in this place of forgiveness and restoration with the Father and, and total commitment to him. That's where we need to stay all our lives. I want to close with a story. It's a long story, so don't get your hopes up that you'll be out here soon. <laughs> Bill Wilson was an alcoholic. I mean bad. He did not graduate from law school because he was too drunk to walk and pick up his diploma. Brilliant man. But alcohol got a hold of his life and it progressively just got worse and worse. He couldn't live without it. He tried everything. He tried drugs and medicine that the doctors could give. He tried every kind of psychotherapy and psychologist and the new, even the new crazy ideas that were out there. Like he tried it all. Nothing worked. And then he found out, he heard a friend of his, Ebby, who was just as raging an alcoholic as he was in law school. He found that Ebby was, was, was sober. And so he, he had some hope and he went to Ebony. He's like, how did it happen? What did you, how, what, what was it? What technique? What medicine? What? And Ebby said, I found religion. Uh, see, Bill Wilson, that was the one thing. He did not want to, he didn't tolerate that. He didn't take that as an answer. That was just, that was just for other people. That's not for me. But totally like at the end of his rope, he decided to start going to a Bible study. It was called the Oxford Group. And uh, going to this Bible study week after week. And then finally, at the end of one of the Bible studies, he prayed with one of the men. And in his words, he said, and I, made, I, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And he said in the next, he'd go to this group drunk. I mean, he didn't look drunk, but he always, always drinking every day. And so the next morning he got up and as was his usual, he had a drink in the morning and it was the last drink he ever had. And he just completely quit alcohol. But several months later, he realized that he was going to drink again if he didn't talk to someone who was an alcoholic. He said, I need to talk to someone who understands and he was out of town, not in his usual place. He's actually in New York City. And so he asked some friends, hey, do you know any alcoholics I can talk to? And they said, well, you know, there's this doctor, Bob Smith. You could talk to him. And so he called up Bob Smith. And Bob was a doctor. He was a surgeon. He was a busy man. And he's like, I'll give you 10 minutes. So he had a 10-minute appointment with him. He went and talked to Bob Smith. They talked for six hours. Bob would drink himself unconscious every night. And every morning before going in for surgery, he'd have a beer or give himself a sedative to steady his hand. <laughs> kind of glad he wasn't my doctor, my surgeon. Talked to him for six hours. And, uh, you know, for Bob, you know, he tried to give up alcohol. It wasn't so quick. And actually, you know, Bill Wilson moved in with Bob and his wife into their house. And, and just it was really kind of the first halfway house because this was 1935. And over a period of months, he helped Bob. And then Bob gave up alcohol, never went back to it. And the two of them went to a Bible study on the book of James. And they came out of that Bible study on the book of James. And they said, we have to come up with a program 12-step program of how to quit alcohol. And that was the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And here's the first step. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. For a lot of us here, you just need to insert the word sin for alcohol. Right? We admitted that we were powerless over the sin in our lives. And I think every single one of us here can relate to that. It might not be alcohol. That might not be the sin that's gotten a hold of you. But all of us, there is some sin that we just are like, man, I just can't stop. I keep running my mouth. Why can't I shut up? Like, I can't, I just keep going back to that sexual temptation. I just can't keep stop. I just keep losing my temper and blowing up and I don't want it. But I just, and my life is unmanageable. That's like the nice way of putting it. <laughs> now, now, one of the things that I think lies that we've come to believe is we've come to believe that like alcoholism, a lot of people teach this, is a disease. It's not a disease. Here's how I know it's not a disease. You ever hear anyone say, you know, I, I was really doing good with my diabetes and then on Tuesday I had diabetes and then I haven't had diabetes since. But I think, I think, you know, I have an anniversary coming up, so I think I'm going to have diabetes next week just for a day. Is, is that how disease works? We get to choose what disease and when we have it and when we don't have it? No, but, but it is like a disease in that without Jesus Christ, we are powerless to overcome our sin. And we can substitute something for something else. And maybe we can even stop doing the sin on the outside and, and, and have this new sin of arrogance and pride and the sin of the older son and the prodigal son story. But, but it is, and, and this is where step two is so important, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could re restore us to sanity. Here's the thing that a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous think this is saying that it's not saying. It's not saying that all you need is a belief in a power greater than yourself. No, it's not magic. It's not, it's not internally that you just need to believe something. No, you actually need a power greater than yourself. Because without that, there's no way you can kick this. There's no way you can stop. And there's no way you can be forgiven. You need a literal power outside of you greater than you. And I'm telling you, there's only one power like that. And his name is Jesus. It's not Allah. It's not Buddha. It's not Krishna. And it's not the Jesus of popular imagination. It's not the Jesus that, that looks like you and thinks like you and always agrees with you. It, it's the Jesus of God's word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and lived among us. And, and this, this is the only one who can restore, restore us to sanity. Sin is always insane, isn't it? I don't know how many times I've seen someone, you know, it just doesn't make sense. Like, why would you do that? And so many times, you know, it doesn't make sense. You're like, yeah, I don't know why. I don't know. I just, I don't know why I keep doing it. Insanity. Um, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. This is what God wants. What a lot of people think is, you know what God wants? God wants me to go to church once a week. 
He wants me to do this religious ritual once a week, and then I'm good with God. That's not what he wants. In fact, let me, let me read to you what Jesus says he wants from us. Luke 9, 23 and 24, then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, go to church once a week and give 10% of your money. No, it's a lot more than that. Get up every morning and uh, spend five minutes reading the Bible and praying. No, if you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. God wants your life. He wants it all. Because frankly, you're not doing very well with all of it on your own. And, you know, it's like that, that another modern parable of like, you know, my, my life being a house. And I invite Jesus into the entryway, but not into the dining room because I don't want you dictating what I eat and don't eat and drink and don't drink. And then you're like, okay, you can be in the dining room, but not in the bedroom, or you can be, but not in the, but not in the closet, but there's this terrible smell in the closet. There's something dead in there. Like you, we need to clean that out. And you're like, no, 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 God, no. The, the, the invitation that Jesus has for you is I want the keys to every room in your life or I'm not coming in. You can't throw me in the trunk of the car. I want the keys and I'm driving. Have you ever made that decision with God? And then uh, the next two are very similar. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves and admitted to God, to ourselves and other human beings, the exact nature of our wrongs. So this is internally and then externally. Why is this important? It, it, you know, 1 John 1, 8, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, right? This is, this is a biblical thing to do. But also Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. I do think there is something about, we are mental creatures, we are spiritual beings, but we're also physical. There's something about physically out loud admitting your sin and asking God to forgive you. And, and then even... Um, telling others about that. We're, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. That, that's, again, this is the same idea. This is, do you want to follow me? Are you ready to give the keys of your life over to me? Because, because you know, a lot of times when, when we come to God, we think, I have this one, it's just one problem, God. I have just this one unmanageable sin. And if you could just get that unmanageable sin out of my life, then I'll take it from there. And, and I think sometimes that is a grace because we don't realize that when we get rid of the 800-pound gorilla, then we look around and we're like, oh, there's skunks and there's a pack of wolves and there's all sorts of other sin in my life that also needs to go. Sometimes we don't even see it because of the big monster sin that is, you know, but other times we're like, yeah, but skunks, they're not that bad. You know, and can I have just one cute, cuddly skunk? No, it smells. It hit you in the face the other week and you were blind for a half hour. Nobody wants to be around you. 
Like that pride of yours that you want to cuddle up with and you don't think is so bad. Like it, it's bad. It's making everybody else sick around you if it isn't making you sick. And I need to deal with it all. And are you ready? Ready for that step in your life? Well, you didn't need this message today to have me explain to you that you have a sin problem, not a mistake problem. And you didn't need me to tell you that your problem is bigger than you can handle and that you can't fix it on your own. But maybe you needed to hear these words of Jesus and words from God's word today to give you that last little nudge to surrender and give your life to Jesus. And if you're here and you've already done that, again, are you back at that starting point again? That starting point of faith, the forgiveness of total, I'm all in, Jesus. I, I took back that room, but here's the key again. I'm gonna, let you, I'm gonna let you have that room of my life. I know it needs to go. It wasn't as bad as this, I thought, but you know what, it just smells and I know it needs to go. Here's the keys to my life. And then, and then this is what the Bible calls the good news. Maybe we should relabel it, the fantastic news. This is what everyone needs. This is what is wrong with everyone's life that you know. All those jerks that you work with, <laughs> All those, all those kids at school, all those, all those family members that this, this is what they need. They need Jesus. Are you going to keep it a secret? Or are you going to share it with them and talk to them and say, man, you know, I, well, I won't tell you what I did. I might have done something that was illegal by law, but I shared Christ with a bunch of people because I don't care. People need to know. And they're trying to fix it on their own. And they're as successful at that as you and I were doing it on our own. We need Jesus. Let's share Jesus with others. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for sending Jesus. Lord, it says none of us were even seeking you you're the one who sought us out. You're the one who came for us. And I just thank you that you came for me. And I just ask that you would help us, Lord, to come to an end of ourselves. In fact, I, I'm going to pray a prayer, Lord, of, of, of forgiveness and salvation. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's never surrendered their life to you, who's never asked you to forgive, not their mistakes, accidents, poor choices, but to forgive our sin. I just pray that they would do that and surrender their lives and pray this prayer with me. God, I am a sinner and it's not pretty and I can't fix it. And so I ask that you would punish Jesus on the cross instead of me. And then as you raise Jesus from the dead, I just ask that you would raise me to a new life to live differently, to follow you. God, I give you every room of my life, every part of me. I give you my money. I give you my time. I give you my desires. I give you my relationships. God, all of it, I want you to have it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.